Amen. I was looking the other day at an online worship song catalog. You know, you just go to a website that's got lists of praise songs, of hymns, Christian, Christian songs you would sing at church. And you're allowed to, you know how you have a, a filter or a sort function, you can sort them by alphabetical title or whatever it might be, when they were written maybe. Um, this one was, a, there was a function for searching by themes. You could pick a theme and say, I want to I find out what songs there are under this, in this category, this theme. You can probably guess which themes had the most songs. Um, Christmas and Easter were really big ones, if you wanted to search that way. Uh, this catalog had um, 2,700 songs for Christmas. Uh, it had over 3,500 songs for Easter. Um, the Love of God category was a big one. It had over 1,300 songs. Uh, Mercy came in at 1624 and Grace at 2102. The largest category was a generic one. It was praise, <laughs> just praise. And it had uh, 4,500 songs uh, under that theme. But in light of our passage this morning, I decided to check two other categories. And those categories were judgment and wrath. Judgment and wrath. Hmm. Now, you'll be pleased to know there actually were links for the, They were actually categories in this song list. Judgment and wrath. As I clicked on these and looked through the, the list, most of the songs listed in those categories were not about future wrath or coming judgment, but about the cross. They were songs about that glorious, glorious truth that in his death, Jesus took the judgment and wrath we deserved. Hallelujah, right? Amen. You can probably think of some of those songs. We sing some of them that mention uh, either judgment uh, and or wrath in Christ alone. Jesus, thank you. And yet, even though most of the songs in these categories were related to the cross, the number of songs listed was tiny compared to the categories that I mentioned to you earlier. Instead of finding thousands and thousands of songs, there were, in the judgment category, 55 songs. And there were, in the wrath category, 105 songs. Now, if you've been in the church for really any length of time, I don't think you're surprised by those numbers. In fact, you may not be able to even think of one hymn or one praise song that deals with future wrath or coming judgment. Anybody got one? Yep. <laughs> there, are some good, there are some ones out there, right? Isaac Watts has one called... Uh, Day of Judgment, Day of Glory, or something like that. Um, that's, that's really interesting. I was looking for some, but they're few and far between. So, why don't we rectify that this morning by looking together at Revelation 15. Take a look at, at Revelation 15 with me. 
I hope that you have been encouraged as you're reading through our reading plan, reading through the book of Revelation. Part of one of the things that we want to do is, is in the right way, demystify the book for you. It's regularly misunderstood, uh, like most things in this world. Uh, the, the, the tribe of shock jocks grab it and they want to run around with it and, and, and come up with all sorts of crazy ideas about what it says. Uh, they want to scare you. They want to they make it fit the, their agenda for whatever uh, historical, political thing is going on. And yet, it doesn't change the reality that the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ is breathed out by God for us. It's His Word. And it was given to seven churches 2,000 years ago because it was the revelation that they needed to hear. And we know why they need it, because we just simply read the chapters 2 and 3 and the short letters that Jesus wrote to them. We know what they were going through. We understand that. And so as you've been reading through it, I pray that it's been a blessing to you to understand some of this. And I pray that as we talk this morning, it will become even more precious to you. Uh, In our time together yesterday, one of the things we talked about is you may not always understand everything that you read in Revelation... But in most cases, you can get a general sense of the point of what's being said. And when you walk away, even with just that, there's a blessing in that, right? There's a blessing. The book itself gives you an explicit blessing for the one who both reads and hears the book of the Revelation. You remember that? It's in the very first chapter of the book. So we are blessed this morning as I announce it to you. You're blessed as you hear it this morning. And I pray that we're able to to open up maybe a a new sense of of understanding this book this morning. So what we find here is John continuing in chapter 15. Have your Bibles open. Take a look at with me. He's continuing to record for us the divinely given visions that make up the majority of this book. So listen to the particular vision that begins in verse 1, chapter 15. John says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. Let's stop there. So I think when John writes great and amazing, it's a good place for us to stop and think, okay, what was he seeing? Can you even imagine how he understood what he was seeing or what it might have looked like? It's just, I don't think we can grasp it, but he says things like great and amazing to try to communicate something about these stunning visions that he was beholding. Remember, John wasn't peering into the future and seeing things he didn't understand. He was being shown symbolic images that were meant to communicate important things to him. For example, Revelation 4 is not a picture of of what heaven looks like with God sitting on a 30-story throne. That's not what it is. The throne and the crowns and the creatures and all of the rainbow and all of those things are images meant to communicate things like splendor, majesty, authority, sovereignty. That's what we take away from it. Not some cartoonish idea of somebody sitting on a big, heavenly, floating, you know, heavenly marble throne or whatever it might be. So when we're sensitive to that, we know how to interpret the book. 
we're able to let those truths wash over us. Splendor, sovereignty, majesty, wonder, grace, power. That's what we're taking here. That's what John is seeing. But don't miss, please don't miss the monumental moment that this verse represents. What I just read to you. As verse 7 will confirm here. These are, the, these are the seven bowl judgments, and with them, the wrath of God is finished. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> when did the wrath of God actually begin? If it's finishing here, what was the starting point? Do we know that? Well, well you may remember that in this book, these seven bowl judgments were preceded by what? Seven trumpet judgments. You remember the seven angels and the seven trumpets? And that seventh trumpet was the one that gave way to where we are here with the bowl judgments. And before those trumpet judgments, this vision was preceded by what? By the opening of the seven seals that were on the scroll. And of course, that seventh seventh seal... On the scroll gave way to the first trumpet judgment. That next set of seven. So we see kind of the progression there. So those seals, chapter 6, you may remember they were affixed to a scroll that only the lamb was worthy to open. Only the lamb was worthy to open that scroll as we heard in chapter 5. So what does the scroll represent? What is this mysterious scroll that's got these seven wax seals across it, keeping it closed, that only Jesus can open? Well, take a look here on the screen. That scroll represents God's plan to bring ultimate justice to the world. There you go. Make sure you guys can see over there. God's plan to bring ultimate justice to the world. If you simply do this, When you're reading Revelation, just follow the fractions mentioned in the book. That's a little tool for your toolbox. Follow the fractions mentioned in the book. Quarter, a third, right, is mentioned. 100%, you get a full kind of full, full, uh, 100%, 10 out of 10 kind of thing. You'll see those, you'll see that happening. I think a tenth is in there too, is one of those fractions. If you simply follow the fractions in the book as you're going from seals to trumpets to bowls, you will see here that God's justice has been intensifying as the chapters progress, leading us to this conclusion with the seven bowls. And we know it's conclusion because what did it just say? The wrath of God is finished with these bowls. But consider with me who else is depicted in the vision recorded here. Look at chapter 15, verse 2. And I saw, says John, what appeared to be a sea of glass. We saw this in chapter 4 around the throne of God. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. That's new. Fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. I saw them standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Now, if we knew nothing except this, right? You're on a desert island and what washes up to shore? Well, what washes up to shore is just this chapter, chapter 15 of Revelation. You'd say, what does this even mean? What is this talking about? 
Well, it would be, well, you'd need the rest of the book, really, but maybe, maybe some other chapters start washing up. But you could actually go from here and say, okay, wait a minute, what does it mean that the individuals here have conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name? How does that connect with the wrath of God mentioned in verse 1? Well, to answer that, we would have to go back to chapter 13. You can go back there if you want. I'll have the text here on the screen. If we go back to chapter 13, verses 15 through 18, there we read about the second beast who later in the book is known as the false prophet. This second beast, who's also called the false prophet, it says this, 13, 15 through 18, and that second beast was allowed to give breath to the image of the first beast. So that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain, killed. Also, that second beast, that false prophet, causes both all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. John says, reader, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Okay. Here's one of those exciting passages that people always like run around crazy with, right? <laughs> anybody, anybody grow up watching and seeing like the, the, the Omen movies <laughs> that came out, right? That little Damien or whatever had, had 666 uh, on his, under his hair. <laughs> very, very goofy, very corny, uh, and definitely not biblical. What are we seeing here? Well, the sil- symbolic number helps us here. What is this symbolic number? It is one less than seven, the number of divine perfection. So it's close. It tries to attain to seven, but it's under seven. And it is three times confirmed for us. Three in a row. Six, 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 rather than seven, seven, seven. What is that indicating? Well, it's probably indicating that this is the number of a false god. A false god. The true God would be symbolically represented by 777. Perfection, three times confirmed. Just like the seraphim who cried, who fly around the throne of God in that heavenly vision of Isaiah chapter 6, said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Three times they said that to confirm it. We see similar language here in the book of the Revelation. So this number indicating a false god corresponds in terms of a mark. It corresponds to how the people of God were marked in chapter 7. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, guess what? There's a symbolic mark that the book says you are set apart with. That's a symbolic mark. We know this is a symbolic mark too. So anybody's trying to tell you you're going to get a microchip or a barcode across your forehead, you can just turn around and walk away. It's, that's just foolishness. That's not understanding the truth of what this actually says. So the people of God are symbolically marked. The people of the beast are symbolically marked. 
And as we see here, this marking is there in order to demonstrate, number one, their allegiance to that first beast. And number two, that, that marking is, allows them to participate in commerce, in buying or selling, to participate in the marketplace in the realm of the beast. And as we heard in chapter 13, verse 15, those who would not receive this mark of allegiance, that is, those who did not worship, those who did not go that way, those who were not conformed to the pattern of the world, it says that they could be killed for their defiance. Now, these symbolic images are not difficult to decipher. When we know who this book was written for, the first readers of the Revelation. They understood the pressures day in and day out of living under the Roman system of false gods. And even worse, even more pressing, the cult of emperor worship that was growing in empire-wide popularity at this time. In fact, their region uniquely across the entire empire, their region there in Western Asia Minor was ground zero for this detestable movement. Worshiping Caesar as a god. How blasphemous, how misguided, how twisted. And it affected the way that they interacted in the marketplace. If you were part of a trade guild, let's say that you were a woodworker or you dyed fabrics or something along those lines, and you were part of a worker's guild, that guild would often have a patron god, a false god. And if you wanted to work and you wanted to make profit and you wanted to be part of buying and selling, you needed to swear allegiance to the god of that guild or else you didn't. You see, that's just one example of the very thing symbolically represented here, what these original readers were facing. So think about God's wrath being finished in the seven bold judgments introduced here. As we think about God's plan for ultimate justice being fully implemented, we need to remember that the first readers of this book, the first readers of this book were people who understood all too well the need for ultimate justice. These weren't namby-pamby, comfortable people. These were people who often suffered in very different ways, who were treated severely and unjustly in a variety of ways. These Christians were suffering, and their suffering, as the book indicates, and as history confirms, their suffering got worse. Worse and worse. Even as the church, one of these churches, the church in Pergamum, mourned one of their church members, Antipas. We know his name from chapter 2, verse 13. They mourned him because he was killed for his faith. One of these believers at one of these churches had already been killed for his faith, Antipas. Even though that was one church, I believe all of these churches could understand the scene in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, where this is what we see, this is what we hear. The souls of those who are martyred cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? 
before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. We know this feeling because we go to movies. And in the movie, we're waiting for the ending where the bad guy gets his, where the good guys win, where good light triumphs over darkness, where justice is done. We know that feeling, don't we? You know that feeling. You're waiting for that. And some of us, you know, some of us film geeks kind of like when it doesn't end that way, we go, oh, that's a powerful ending. Others are like, I hated that movie. I liked it all the way up until the ending. And then when it didn't have the right ending, the one that I wanted to see, it's a bad movie <laughs> all of a sudden. Well, it just speaks to how much we long for justice to be done for the light to overcome the darkness, right? We know that. In the same way, these Christians, just because of their faith, were being murdered. They were being killed. And we have brothers and sisters all around the world today. I believe it's true that the greatest number of martyrs who have died for the church, those who have died for their faith, has taken place within the last 50 or 60 years. More people have been killed in this past time than in previous generations, previous centuries. Men and women are dying for Jesus Christ all around the world today. And so we see, as we see there in 610, we see this cry for justice. When will this end, Lord? When will those who have done wrong and who have unjustly murdered those who believe in Christ simply for their faith, when will that be addressed? When will that wrong be righted? When will justice be done? We hear that. The churches could understand this. But God's ultimate justice means more than just retribution. We need to understand that. We need to have the full picture. It also means reward. It means reward as well. You, you and I might hear justice and think, somebody's going to get it. Right? That's kind of our first thought. Justice. Somebody's going to get it. Well, guess what? Somebody's also going to get blessed. Somebody's also going to get a reward. Just as Jesus told his followers, uh, me and you and me going away and coming back is like a, a master who entrusts to his disciples money to work with until he comes home. And when he comes home, he's going to ask them what they've done with that money. And to those who have made profit for him, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And he blesses them and he rewards them for their faithfulness. And that's not the only place in the New Testament where there is that same picture, where there is that same promise. Is that contradictory to grace? No, it's not contradictory to grace. Because we know the New Testament also teaches us that any good that we do in this world ultimately comes from his power at work within us. We give glory to him who gave us new life. We give glory to him who works through us to be able to do good in this world, to love others, to make spiritual profits for the glory of our master. That is also what justice means. Reward for those who have conquered. Those who in the face of earthly powers and worldly temptations did not give up or give in ultimately. This is how the 24 elders expressed it in chapter 11, verses 17 through 18. Take a look. 
We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, doesn't matter. Rewarding your servants and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. See both sides of that? What's happening there? This is how the scroll is being carried out. The decree contained within the symbolic scroll is being carried out. Jesus appointed, the man appointed, as Paul said in Acts chapter 17 to the Athenians, Jesus, this man that God raised from the dead, is the one that he's appointed to judge the living and the dead. Now, what is the response of those described in verse 2? Remember those people standing by the sea of glass? They had harps in their hands. Well, why did they have those harps? Look at the response in light of the imminent opening of the floodgates of divine wrath. What is their response? They sing. (laughs) The floodgates of divine wrath and judgment are about to be opened up. And what are these people doing? They're singing as a response. That's crazy, isn't it? That's stunning to us. They're singing. Look at verses 3 and 4. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. And they sing the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Wow. What a picture. Why is this song called the song of Moses and the song of the lamb? Somebody be indecisive there about the title. Can't choose one. Nah, it's both, right? It's both. I believe the song of the lamb is the song mentioned in the previous chapter. Look back at chapter 14, verses 3 and 4. You'll see there that John tells us that this group was singing a new song. A song no one could learn except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Remember, the number's just symbolic. It's 12 times 1,000 times 12. What does that mean? It's the fullness of the people of God. It's the great multitude described in the second half of chapter 7 after the symbolic sealing of the 144,000. Put in terms of tribes of Israel, but just talking about the completeness of the people of God. This is the people of God here. And they sing a song that no one else can sing. Brother or sister, if you are saved this morning, if you know God, if you have peace with God, if you are a genuine, converted, transformed, born-again believer, you sing a song no one else can sing. Only you know that song. Only your brothers and sisters know that song. Because it's only taught to you by the Holy Spirit when He rescues you and redeems you and makes you His own. Now, I'm not just talking about a literal song. I'm talking about the melody of your heart of one who's been set free. One who desires to glorify God. One who knows love that is incomparable in this world. Do you know that song this morning? If you do, then you know Christ. 
And you can only know that song by knowing God through Christ. That's this song of the Lamb. And John goes on to confirm in chapter 14, it's these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. But I believe the song of Moses points us back to Exodus 15. Exodus 15, where we find a similar song being sung. A song that also glorified our God who is mighty to save. A song that was also sung by those, verse 2, standing beside the sea. A song that was also sung by those who had been redeemed from slavery. You see, that's the song of Moses as well. We sing that song as well. But the song in Exodus 15 came at the end of many instances in which the judgments of God had been poured out on Egypt. If you've read that account or you've seen the prince of Egypt, right, you know those those devastating plagues that God rained down upon Egypt to break the will of Pharaoh. Frogs and hail and darkness and the death of the firstborn, right? All of those ten plagues that fell on them. And then here in Exodus 15, it's the song that rises up. Why? Because Pharaoh, even though he said he let them go, he came after them with a vengeance to destroy Israel. But he, in fact, was destroyed by God when the waters of the Red Sea came back on top of him. You see, the judgment had already taken place. Here, the final judgments, the finishing of the wrath of God, and I mean finishing the wrath of God for all eternity. The wrath of God will never be manifest again after this. Here, these judgments that break God's enemies and bury God's enemies just as they had in Egypt... Those judgments are still to come. They haven't taken place yet. We see that here in chapter 15. The bowls have not been poured out, but it is the beginning. It's the start. And that reality drives the redeemed to sing. Now, here's my question for you. Would you sing? If you were there, would you be singing as well? Some of us read a book like this and and think about judgments like these and we are moved to tears. Some of us read a book like this and think about judgments like these and we are moved to silence, sober-mindedness. Some of us are humbled. Some of us are disturbed. Some of us feel dread when we read a book like this. Some of us are shocked when we hear something like this. But those who are pictured here are moved to sing. And it doesn't mention that this is a lamentation. (laughs) That's not what this is. That's not what this is. This is a song of triumph. This is a declaration rising up to God. Why are they moved to lift their voices in song? Well, look at the very, the very truths the song lyrics here reveal are confirmed by the next revelation. Look at verses 5 through 8. Chapter 15, look, 
Look at verses 5 through 8. John tells us, after this, after that song, I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. The symbolic representation of the Old Testament tabernacle or tent of meeting. And out of that sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues. It's about to go down, people. Clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures, these are cherubim, given to the seven, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, the God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now listen again to that description in verse 8. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. John has been given a symbolic glimpse of the awesome reality that God really is glorious and powerful in ways that you can't even understand, in ways that I can't even understand, incomprehensible to us. So why were those redeemed by the Lamb standing by the sea, lifting their voices in song, in light of such awful judgments coming, in light of such devastation, in light of the coming flood of divine wrath? Because the glory and power of our God would be revealed. Did you hear that? The glory and the power of our God would be revealed. And when God's glory and God's power are revealed, no matter how they are revealed, God's people worship. Now you and I are finite mortal creatures. We are but dust. And in ways, some ways this bothers us. We don't like this. We don't like what we're hearing in some ways. But my friends, behold our God. This is our God. Mighty to save. Mighty to judge. Awesome in all of his ways. Just as the song proclaimed, God is great. God is amazing. He is just. He is true. He is gloriously and powerfully just. He is gloriously and powerfully true. He is king. We should fear him and glorify his name. He is holy. In fact, the final phrase of that song, verse 4, where our translation has, for your righteous acts have been revealed, probably in this context, it's better translated, for your judgments have been revealed. Your judgments have been revealed. And though the guilty never see it as such, a just judgment is always right and good. Do you believe that? A just judgment is always right and good. A just judgment is always right and good. And God's judgments are always just. Always. 
Therefore, they are always right and good. The redeemed from every nation will one day worship God. Not just Israel, but the redeemed from every nation, Jew and Gentile, will one day worship God in light of the ultimate, perfect justice He will bring to our world, both retribution and reward. For in both His redemption and His wrath, our God is and should be glorified. Amen? You're tepid this morning. You're tepid, right? Do you believe that? Let me, let me try to drive that home for you. Brothers and sisters, too many people, too many Christians are simply disturbed or grieved or fearful in light of this book. Or they are none of those things because they simply see this book as a kind of textbook for what we could call end times arithmetic. That's all they're interested in. Of course, it isn't wrong to be grieved by what the revelation reveals, is it? It's not wrong. And yes, we should be shaken and sobered by the realities described here. Absolutely. But if we do not leave this book singing, I'm afraid we really haven't understood the book. Revelation should inspire us to sing. It should inspire us to sing. Why sing? Why worship? Why should we be driven to praise? We know how many would answer. Yeah, absolutely we should sing in light of the eternal consummation and consolation in communion with God that we will enjoy forever and ever and ever. That's awesome, isn't it? Hard to even wrap your mind around that, how good that is, how wonderful that is. We should sing for that reason. We should rejoice that those who do not give in and those who do not give up, those who overcome, to use the language of Jesus. And he promised those, if they overcame, he promised them that they would be with him in glory, that they would enjoy the tree of life, that they would have a new stone with their name written on it, that they would sit on his throne as he sits on the throne with his father. They would reign with him, is the idea. All those promises in chapters 2 and 3, he will do that, right? They will be rewarded according to the justice of God. That's the obvious answer. But let me put this to you. Shouldn't we also rejoice when the tyranny of our sin is ended? You believe that? Shouldn't we also glorify God when our humanity-wide rebellion against Him is crushed forever? Mm, uh, mm, pastor. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Shouldn't we praise Him when that justice, justice that is long overdue is finally meted out? We do that very thing now, don't we? We do that very thing today in this world when an evil regime is ended or a killer is brought to justice or embezzled savings are restored or when an abuser is sentenced or an unjust law is overturned, we rejoice. We rejoice. Some people even take to the streets to celebrate, both here and abroad. You've seen pictures of it. 
The dictator has fallen, right? People are excited. They're singing. They're doing their thing. Hitler was defeated. The, the Axis powers are defeated. People on the streets of New York singing. A guy's kissing a girl. All that stuff is happening. People are celebrating. Why should it be any different? Why should it be any different in the end when our world is flooded by God's perfect justice? In a world where evil is called good and good is called evil, revelation is about God setting things right. Revelation in a world of such immense human-caused suffering, revelation is about the end of such suffering and accountability for its perpetrators. Here's what I believe is clear. The more comfortable you are in this world, the less likely this book will inspire praise in you. If this doesn't drive you to praise God and sing, then you're comfortable in this world. You accepted the status quo. You accepted this is how things are and they'll always be this way. That you'll always hurt. People will always wrong and hurt other people. That we have to accommodate injustice. Have to tolerate it. You've become comfortable. But if, you, if your suffering has been real and deep, friend, if your suffering in this life has been real and deep, if you live every day with the painful consequences of sin and sinners, Maybe your own sin. Maybe some other people's sins. If you desperately long every day for things to be different, then I believe this book, when rightly understood, will drive you to rejoice. It will drive you to rejoice. How could it not? Even if you can't honestly say that you've suffered profoundly in this life, And there are many of us who can't say that. I can't say that. I can't say I've suffered profound this life. I just can't. When I sit with so many of you and I hear your stories, I know what profound suffering is from you, from others. I haven't. I haven't. I simply haven't. If you're like me, though, and you have not suffered profoundly in this life, the more you are grieved by sin around you, the more you are grieved by the darkness of your own heart, the more deeply you love what is good and you love the honor of God's name, this book will drive you to rejoice. Because this book says it's going to change one day. It will be different one day. Now, some of you will ask, what about mercy, though? Pastor, I keep hearing you talk about judgment and wrath. I keep hearing you talking about punishment for the guilty, the putting down of rebellion. I keep hearing all these really heavy ideas. What about mercy? Shouldn't we pray for mercy for this world instead of judgment? Shouldn't we grieve for the loss? The lost without Christ. Brothers and sisters, it is possible to both grieve for sinners lost and give thanks for sinners stopped. 
Both of those things are true. Both of those things are true. It's possible to be shaken by God's judgments and in awe of his justice. Praise you. Remember this. Our God is also grieved over each sinner lost. But he is also deeply satisfied with justice for each sinner judged. If that doesn't sound like your God, your God is not the God of the Bible. And in both cases, he is absolutely glorified. He is glorified wonderfully. Of course, it's critical that as we stand here talking about this, that we remember this. All of this wrath-inspired praise that we're talking about must be rooted in cross-inspired humility. Our wrath-inspired praise should be rooted in cross-inspired humility. What does that mean? It means this. On the cross, Jesus drank a cup that contained the same wrath described in this book. I'm speaking figurative, of course. He wasn't really drinking a cup. But the picture of him drinking in the wrath of God that he suffered for us. He drank in that wrath, the same wrath described in this book. Though spotless, though innocent, the lamb was crushed under divine judgment for every person written in this book of life. The one that's talked about in this book several times. Though we deserve the retribution described in this book, because of Christ, we will experience the reward described in this book. Isn't that wonderful? Are you grateful this morning when you hear that? Have you been redeemed by the Lamb this morning? Rescued from wrath to come by the one who came to take that wrath in your place? Trust Him this morning. If you don't know Him, trust Him this morning. Admit that Jesus is your only hope for this life and for the next life. Justice is worth singing about. Justice is worth singing about. Both justice at the cross and the justice still to come. So as you finish the revelation this week, ask God, pray to Him, ask Him to to inspire this kind of worship in you as you read. As His glory and His power are revealed. As the tyranny of human sin comes to an end one day. And the promise that it will end. When God will set things right. Say along with John in the closing of this book. Come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. That's not simply a prayer to be in his presence. It is a prayer at the end of this book for retribution, reward, and restoration through Christ. So when you pray that, you're praying all of this. Come and end sin's tyranny. The sin that you defeated on the cross, purge our universe of it. Come and reward those, your people, who will be rewarded because of your great mercy and grace at work within them. Come and restore all things. Paul called it summing up all things 
in Christ. We need to glorify God, don't we? For both His mercy and His justice. We need to glorify Him for His grace and His judgments. So give thanks for how His justice will purify our poisoned universe. It will purge it of all evil and it will restore it to a world of glorious righteousness. Even as we talked about several weeks ago, a world in which righteousness is at home, 2 Peter chapter 3. Let's praise Him for that glorious day to come. This is how another song puts it. You may know this song. One day the trumpet will sound for his coming. One day the skies with his glories will shine. Wonderful day, my beloved one bringing. My Savior, Jesus is mine. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. Oh, glorious day.